This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Wednesday, November 1st. On the pod today, the gates of the Rafah border crossing open today, finally letting some people out of Gaza. We'll speak to a Canadian woman who has family still stuck in Gaza. Plus, fear of the Israel-Hamas war spreading rises as Yemen's Houthi rebels say they've launched missiles and drones against Israel. We have two Middle East experts here to weigh in. And we ask Immigration Minister Mark Miller about the government's move to cap immigration levels in 2026. Some foreign nationals were able to get out of Gaza today for the first time since the Israel-Hamas war started, but Canadians were not among those able to leave. Many Canadians are still waiting for their chance to get to safety, and Azia Mathkour is one of those Canadians. She, along with her parents and two children, two-year-old Salma and five-year-old Salam, all hold Canadian passports, but still no way to cross the Rafah border yet. And many of her family, including her husband and extended family, don't hold the foreign nationality needed to get out. Azia has been crammed in a house with her extended family near the Rafah border. And we spoke to Azia's sister-in-law, May Latif, last week. She told us that she had lost connection with Azia for a few days. Since then, Azia has been able to send some voice notes on her current situation and says she's disappointed that Canadians were not included on the list of foreign nationals able to leave Gaza today. Honestly, I was very, very disappointed that... um we weren't called by Global Affairs, uh, giving us the news to go actually and leave. Not receiving a, an email saying, oh, it's, your res- it's on your responsibility and we don't guarantee that you would be able to cross you or your family. It's very, very honestly disappointing and uh, saddens me to see that we were not a priority to leave with, just like the other countries, uh, the other nationalities were able to leave. The situation is just getting worse and worse by the minute. Today, uh, for example, uh, there was no bread whatsoever. Um, all the bakeries were um, out of it, out of uh, flour and out of bread. Uh, and I've, uh, I've heard a few of my relatives here saying that uh, their lineups for the bakery start at 3 a.m. in the morning. Honestly, I don't know what's left. Like, uh, what, what, what is the world waiting for? What are Canadians waiting for, to be honest? Are, are they waiting for to hear about me? I'm dead with all my kids and my family and, oh, we're just added to the numbers. Like, what's going on? People honestly need to start moving. Everything is so scary. Okay, we're going to speak to Azia's sister-in-law, May Latif, in just a second. But first, we want to get the very latest information we can from Egypt. The CBC's Tom Perry is in Cairo, and he joins us now with the latest. So, Tom, you spoke with Canada's ambassador to Egypt today. What do we know about the effort to get Canadians out of Gaza? Yeah, we sat down with Louis Dumas, the uh, ambassador, Canada's ambassador to Egypt uh, today. Uh, and we, we talked for quite a while uh, about really the efforts that are going on. Canada, of course, has been saying since the beginning of this crisis that it's been working around the clock uh, to get its uh, Canadian citizens out of Gaza. But uh, right now, really, there's really nothing much to show for it. So I asked the ambassador, I said, you know, why did we not see Canadian names on this first list, that list that came out last night, the people who we saw uh, leaving Gaza today through the Rafa gate? 
The answer was essentially that he thought maybe this was a bit of a, a trial run, that this was just kind of the first day and that it's going to take time. And so in talking to the ambassador about that, you really got a sense of just how complicated the Canadians see this as, that it's not really just a matter of Canada putting forward a list and saying, OK, here's the people and now let's bring them out. There's a number of players and a number of you know aspects in play here that the Canadians have to address. That's really what he emphasized today, that this is complicated, that Canada keeps working at it. But obviously, you speak to Canadians who are stuck in Gaza, and they're still very frustrated by this. As complicated as it might be for the diplomats and for the politicians, for them, it's really a matter of life and death. Okay, so, so Tom, we did see, though, people get out. So, so there has been some progress there. What, what do we know exactly about who did get out today? Well, it was a number of foreign nationals from a bunch of different countries uh, who, who got out today, as well as um, those people who were injured uh, in the Israeli bombardment uh, of Gaza. Israel, of course, has been just... Uh, bombarding uh, Gaza well, ever since October 7th when Hamas carried out that horrific attack against Israeli civilians. And that's really the whole raison d'etre that people were moving to the south trying to get out of, of Gaza all these weeks. So uh, some people have gotten out. We've heard from the U.S. president saying he expects American citizens will be getting out as early as tomorrow. The question now remains when are Canadians going to get out? When we spoke to the ambassador today, he says he's hopeful that will happen in the next few days. But again, you speak to Canadians in Gaza and they say they'll believe that when they see it. They want to get out right now. Okay, Tom, thanks so much. That's the CBC's Tom Perry in Cairo. Well, as Tom says, some foreign nationals were able to get out, but Canadians were not among those able to leave. We want to check in with the family now of Azia Mathkor, uh, who is there with her children and her parents. Her sister-in-law is May Latif. Uh, we just heard from Azia in those voice notes we played for you a little bit earlier in the show. So, May, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for joining me. Um, the first wave of foreign passport holders were, were able to cross the border. You heard what Tom said uh, about the situation there. How are you feeling right now about these latest developments? Well, it's the first time the borders are open in over four weeks. So, you know, we have to say that that, that is good news and that some individuals were able to leave. Um, but we were disappointed that Canadians weren't on the list, um, especially because there was individuals from Japan, Finland, Australia, many parts of Europe that were included on the list and they were also released with family members as well as extended family members. So we stayed, we stayed up all night looking for their names on the list and we couldn't find any area for Canada. Um, there was Americans also listed there and as you heard Biden said that many Americans will be leaving tomorrow whereas the email that Asia received had no confirmation as to when she will be leaving and it's a Every moment, every day is another possibility that she's not going to make it. So she doesn't feel like she has that much time left. And so it was very scary for her today. The, the, no, no sense of hope at all, May? Um, I, I know it's hard. and I'm not trying to, to minimize the concerns by any stretch. Um, but, you know, we, we've heard reports there's about 8,000 foreign passport holders inside Gaza who should get out or may get out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, is there something tangible there at all? I wonder. Uh, we always have to hold on to hope, yeah. right? So we do feel a little bit better today. The fact that the borders just opened is is a sense of hope. Uh, but there's just a lot of fear. Um, we know in the past when, you know, there's a possibility of them leaving, things came up 
that challenge that. And so there's almost a fear even in the hope, like you don't want to get too excited. We know 300 citizens left today, but we also know from the email that Canadian officials sent us from Global Affairs. I just want to read one portion of it. Um, it says, even with Canadian passport or permanent residence PR card, we cannot guarantee that you will be allowed to leave Gaza. Some or all of your family members may not be allowed to leave Gaza. So this also means that they might be torn apart when they reach the borders. This is very scary for people who are in a highly traumatized state. Um, As is scared that her husband won't be able to go and she'll have to leave with her children. Uh, there's There's a lot of emotions around this. And we're still confused as to why Canada's saying it's a complicated matter when other uh, Western nations have been able to put their, their citizens on the list. Yeah, and uh, I, I can absolutely understand uh, your reaction to that because uh, it's interesting to see that even the United States was only able to get a few people out who work for the aid, aid agencies that are in there, right? And, and, and your, your point about her concern that she might have to leave her husband behind because there are reports of, of, of families with some people born there, we may be with one child born in Europe, so they might have a European citizenship from a country there, but not the whole family. And so, so there's limits on, on who could actually get out. And that, that's the potential in your family right now, isn't it? Because of the sort of the mixed citizenship uh, between Asia and, and who she's there with. Yeah, I also want to highlight that the email cl clearly stated a few times that she has to leave at her own risk, that the Rafah border is actually considered to be unsafe, it's overcrowded, um, and that she won't have support even if she makes it on the other side. So there's still fear around whether that decision is safe for her because she has two young children. If she has to pass without her husband, who is pr pr like a protection mechanism for the family as well, um, and two of her parents who are elderly, that's also going to be very scary. So there's a lot of decisions here at play. And she's so exhausted. They're so exhausted. They've been eating very little bit, drinking very little bit. So you can imagine how the news was taken in today. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine how difficult it is, and, and especially after the weekend where communication was lost, contact with the outside world was lost for a while as, as Israel started the next phase of it. Uh, you lost contact with them. Uh, once you reconnected, I mean, uh, I mean, how are they doing now compared to, to the last time we spoke when uh, things were being rationed and it was pretty rough? Well, it's really important to note that the communication keeps getting lost. So yesterday we were out of contact with them for about 16 hours, then it came back in. So it's continually going on and off. So there's that fear as well. They still don't have electricity. Um, it's also really important to highlight that just a few days ago, a nearby refugee camp, which you, you've mentioned on your show, mm -hmm. was bombed over. 400 people died and it's it's really close to where they are so they're feeling that pain they're feeling that fear they don't know what's going to happen uh one second ground evasion is looming and then the other second the border is opening so they're they're also in a confused state i, I think when we last spoke um ozzy is there with her two children two-year-old little girl salma a five-year-old boy salam i remember i think it was salma was sick I think that's what you told me. How, how are the, the yeah. kids, how are they doing now? So thankfully that has passed. They're both okay. Um, you know, we, we keep getting, uh, it's like miraculous, uh, the amount of like 
almost something really bad is about to happen to them and then things are okay. So, but we're constantly living in that state and they definitely are as well of like moment by moment. Could we get sick and there's not a lot of medical supplies? There's no antibiotics, for example. Um, could something happen now or within the next five to 10 minutes? So again, it's a, it's a priority to get them out as soon as possible. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't know how quickly it would happen or exactly how it will happen, but the sense is is that there may very well be a window. And I know you say it's a complicated choice. I would hope that the Canadian Embassy would have some sort of transportation there to help people who would get out. That seems like the sort of thing a government like Canada would do once they've given been given notice that people can get out. Um, for, for the sake of the kids, do, do you think Asia w- would make the choice uh, to leave with them, even if everyone else can't? Uh, I know it's an impossible choice, and I can't imagine having to make it. But I just wonder, with with two year old and five year old, if if that's where you think it goes. Well, they belong to a tight knit community that believe that the safety of the children come first, and so she will have to make that decision. It will be very difficult um, because her children ultimately would have to leave, not knowing if they will see the father again. But at this point, we're at a point that saving some individuals is is the way we have to go, right? Specifically for children. So that is a decision that she would have to make on her own. But I believe she would go. Um, and, and don't forget about the guilt of leaving so many behind, knowing they're stuck in a prison-like environment um, with little to no resources, right? So this is, it's difficult no matter what happens, but we're happy that there's some movement there near the borders. Well, May, uh, we are trying to get the government of Canada to come on the show to uh, tell us exactly what's going on. Uh, if we get answers, we'll get in touch. If you get answers, uh, please reach out. We always appreciate it when you take the time. May Latif, thank you so much for joining us today. There are also issues on another front as Iranian-aligned Houthi rebels are targeting Israel with ballistic missiles and drones. This is footage released by Houthi military media. They claim it shows the launch of the missiles and drones from an unidentified location in northwestern Yemen. Israel says it thwarted those attacks and is now deploying Navy assets to the Red Sea. The Houthis govern large swaths of Yemen. They're part of the so-called Axis of Resistance, an Iranian-backed network that includes Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and other militias in Iraq and Syria. This was the third such attack launched by the Houthis, and they're vowing to carry out more. Arif Lalani previously served as a Canadian ambassador to the UAE, Jordan, and Iraq. He's now a senior advisor at Strategy Corp. Thomas Juno previously served as a Middle East analyst for the Canadian Defence Department. He is a fellow at the Santa Centre for Strategic Studies and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Gentlemen, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us again today. Thank you. So, Tamar, this is the third attack carried out by by the Houthis, and they are vowing to carry out more. So what kind of threat do these attacks pose to Israel? This is a significant development in regional politics that we've seen. You know, ever since Saudi Arabia invaded and intervened militarily in Yemen in 2015, we have seen very clearly Iranian military assistance to the Houthis ramp up significantly. Uh, Support for drones, for missiles, uh, for small arms, weapons, intelligence, cash, and so on. Houthi capabilities have ramped up a lot over the years. And as of a couple years ago, it seemed that Houthi missiles and drones could reach 
significant parts of Saudi Arabia. They could reach the UAE. They did that, caused some damage, uh, but they were still a couple hundred kilometers short of Israel. More recently, the Houthis in a military parade just a few months ago showed off missiles that they said could reach Israel, which on its own was significant. But now what we've seen is that they've actually acted on that threat. Those missiles themselves cannot cause major damage to Israel because Israeli air defenses can stop them. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that the Houthis have done it is a major development that, that represents a, a, a significant threat from the south to Israel in addition to threats from the north and the east. Okay, so uh, Arif, we've talked a lot about Hamas and, and Hezbollah. How significant is it from your perspective that the Houthis appear to be entering into this conflict? Look, uh, I, I think it's significant. I think all of these attacks from Hamas or Hezbollah or now the Houthis are significant in that they're clearly designed to test and to provoke uh, Israel and to send a message that others have the capability uh, of attacking. And I think the danger that should concern us all is that we somehow stumble in to a wider regional conflict um, as a result of these attacks. It's in no one's strategic interest uh, to have a wider conflict, but it's very hard when missiles are coming uh, over uh, your citizens um, to try and exercise some strategic restraint. So I think that's the real worry here uh, day after day, as, as these missile attacks continue. So, Tama, it, it's pretty clear uh, and well established the relationship between Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas. But what, what do we know about the relationship with the Houthis? And, and would Tehran have to, to green light these attacks, or are they uh, sort of a, a free agent on this? I would say somewhere in between, in the sense that the Houthis now, they are the de facto government in northwest Yemen. They control the capital, Sana'a, and they have done so for nine years now. Uh, They have been at war with a Saudi-led coalition since 2015, but the Houthis have basically won this war, in large part because of Iranian assistance. Iranian military and financial assistance really has been significant uh, for the Houthis. That being said, the Houthis have also won the war because their domestic enemies, their domestic rivals have been really completely fragmented and incompetent. So, yes, Iranian support has played a major role, but it's not the only one. What is the status of, you know, the the balance between Iran and the Houthis? To my mind, the Houthis are not a a pawn of Iran. They are not a puppet of Iran with Iran simply pulling the strings. They are partners. They are allies, with obviously Iran being the much bigger partner between the two. So now, with Hamas under serious threat, with the possibility of escalation with Hezbollah, to me it was a given that the Houthis would come in and, and signal to Israel and to the region as a whole. There's a major signal to Saudi Arabia, too, right now, to say we are in this. We are not necessarily looking for an escalation, but we want to signal to Saudi Arabia, to Israel, that we are with Iran, with Hamas and Hezbollah. And this is an important signal to Israel. It's a slap in the face to Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia went to war in Yemen in 2015 with the objective of defeating the Houthis. Not only have they failed... The Houthis now have the capability to hit Israel, which they did not remotely come close to having just a few years ago. So, Arif, on that point, the Houthis, they've been in peace talks with Saudi Arabia, but now they're flying rockets and and drones that have to travel sometimes through Saudi airspace to reach their target in Israel. So how do you think Saudi Arabia will will respond to, to these attacks? Look, this clearly complicates the issue for Saudi Arabia precisely because of the airspace issue. But I think the other uh, important observation here is, as, as Thomas mentioned, you know, the inability of the Saudis after years uh, of trying to eradicate uh, the Houthis 
uh, it's just yet another example of it's very hard to eliminate these these terrorist type organizations and the fact that the Houthis are still able to fire missiles. It just shows you how, how complicated and how difficult the objective is going to be in terms of trying to get rid of Hamas. I would say, I, 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 don't, I don't think that the Houthis are saying you know, that they're in this fight. I think what they're saying is that they have capabilities. Right. And what, what they and others are trying to do is pressure uh, the Arab states to say, you know, you need to actually uh, be more active here in trying to find a solution. I, I think that's also part of what's going on here. But Tamar, if they go too far in, in showing their capabilities, and if the other members of this uh, axis of resistance, as it's called, uh, do similar things and, and maybe go a little bit too far, and this does widen, what does Saudi Arabia do? do, uh, you know, with, with a foe like the Houthis getting into this? I mean, could it push the Saudis closer to Israel, who they've been trying to normalize relations with? That's a good question. And, and clearly, all of this uh, puts Saudi Arabia in a very difficult position, uh, specifically the war in Gaza. I mean, Saudi Arabia was probably close to a normalization agreement with Israel as of October 6th, before the, the, the terrorist attack and the launch of the war. And Saudi Arabia does not like Hamas. It supports the idea of defeating Hamas, but it has to deal with a population, the Saudi population, that has significant pro-Palestinian feelings, pro-Palestinian views. Saudi Arabia is not a democracy, but it still has to be sensitive to, to that domestic pressure. So it is trying to balance that. Add to that the Houthi dimension, uh, who are now, as Arif said, not formally in the war. That's an exaggeration, but they have signaled their support for Hamas and Iran, and they have signaled their their position quite quite clearly here. That also puts Saudi Arabia in a difficult position because Saudi Arabia has been trying for years now to extricate itself from a war in Yemen that it has lost. Uh, and this, in many ways, makes that withdrawal that much more difficult because the main reason why Saudi Arabia has been really struggling to get out of the war in Yemen is that Saudi Arabia has lost. It is trying to withdraw from Yemen while minimizing the concessions it is making to the Houthis. But the Houthis are saying, wait a minute, you lost. If you want to withdraw, you are going to have to give us everything that we want, or at least most of what we want. And now with this situation, with the new leverage that, that the Houthis have shown towards Israel, that does not make Saudi Arabia's job of, of ending its role in this war any, any easier. So it's, it's a very delicate balance for, for Riyadh. So, so Arif, and another development, Israel's neighbor, Jordan, it recalled its ambassador today, accusing Israel of creating an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe for the execution of its offensive in Gaza. I mean, how significant is this move? And what does it tell us about whether or not Israel is becoming isolated uh, diplomatically here? I think it's very significant. Uh, I, I think Jordan it has a very difficult situation. You, your audience knows that uh, you know uh, over half of the Jordanian population is is Palestinian. So it's a very difficult position for Jordan. And at the heart of this is the bigger issue you mentioned. Uh, you know, you need a complete set of objectives here. Uh, what happens after you defeat Hamas or, or after you finish your military operation? Uh, I think a number of Arab states, Jordan, the UAE, and, and Saudi Arabia in particular, um, are, are quite worried about what happens afterwards. And the fact that Jordan felt compelled because of, uh, of its domestic situation to withdraw its ambassador makes that, you know, day after question 
much more difficult. And, and all of the decisions that I think are going to be taken in the next few days, in the next few weeks, in my mind, hinge on this one central question, which is when all of this is done, who runs Gaza? Who administers and who manages Gaza? And I think if you don't take uh, the interests of your peace partners, the Arab countries that have signed peace agreements with you, the answer to that becomes uh, that much more difficult. Yeah, uh, Tomas, certainly the, there's no clear answer on that day after question. And it's one a lot of analysts uh, say is, is, is the most pressing thing to, to think about uh, uh, right now. Uh, but I saw you nodding along to a Reef's analysis on the, the diplomatic isolation, increasing isolation we're seeing with Israel. What's your sense of, of how this is playing out? I, I agree with, with what Arif said. And the issue of the day after is, is an extremely important question that to which there's no obvious answer. And, and some are responding to that in Israel or some of, of you know, the main backers of Israel in the U.S. and elsewhere. This is not the time. This is the time to focus on defeating and eliminating Hamas. Fair. But A, there will be a day after whatever happens, and B, the objective of eliminating Hamas is an extremely ambitious one, and, and few independent analysts think that that's actually possible. Weaken it. Seriously weaken it. Yes, but eliminating it, no. What happens in the Gaza Strip? There is no other realistic alternative to Hamas right now. The Islamic Jihad group is even more extremist than, than Hamas and doesn't have the political infrastructure or architecture that would allow it mm -hmm. to play a role in governance anyways. The Palestinian Authority is completely discredited in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank too for that matter, and the idea that it could ride into the Gaza Strip on the backs of Israeli tanks would be a recipe to kill whatever credibility it has left. Some people are throwing ideas of a NATO force, of U.S. forces, I frankly see that as fantasy. I don't see how that could happen. Others are talking about Arab forces, but as Arif just said, if relations are being seriously strained with Jordan, possibly with others, that makes that even less likely. And, and in any case, the idea of an Arab force in the Gaza Strip, to me, was never, never possible. So the answer of who runs Gaza after, and in particular, how do you make sure that the answer to that question doesn't lead to a simple repeat of the cycle of yeah. violence and humanitarian catastrophe? I don't see a viable answer at this point. Yeah, and, and we heard from John Kirby, uh, the national security spokesperson for the Biden administration today. There are no plans to, to put U.S. Uh, troops on the ground in Gaza now yep. or in the immediate future. So uh, that day after question is a big one and, and one we'll talk about uh, further on another day. I want to thank you both, Arif Lalani and Tomas Juno. Thanks so much, gang. I always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. The Liberal government announced today it's capping immigration levels in 2026. Next year, the government aims to bring in 485,000 permanent residents. In 2025, that will rise to 500,000. They plan to hold that target steady in 2026 at that 500,000 person mark. The decision to cap that level in 2026 comes as Canada faces a significant housing supply crunch. Mark Miller is Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. He joins us now. Minister, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, David. Tell me how you came to this decision. Why hold the number steady at 500,000 in 2026? Well, I guess a couple of things. After having looked at our strategic immigration review, uh, clearly hearing from Canadians that we had to be a little more organized in how we did a number of things. One, work together with provinces in making sure that we're taking into account housing. If housing were the only thing, we'd still have a challenge in who builds them. But it, not only that, uh, health care... Um, the needs of the economy, what industry is saying, what unions are saying to us, uh, and looking at the mix that exists between three broad categories of protected persons, of, uh, of, of parents and spouses, and then 
The other 60%, which is the largest portion of it, which is the economic portion, so net increases to the gross domestic product of Canada. And looking at those considerations, looking at the wide swath of indicators that we need to take a little better account of in our analysis, uh, 500,000 was, you know, and is still an ambitious number, but one we thought was reasonable in the context as we kind of refine the tools that we've um, been told we need to use uh, for the next immigration review by, by Canadians. And so uh, I think this makes sense. Uh, I think as a country we can tackle a lot of the challenges that we're facing, both on the need for immigration, but um, in the specific sectors that people are telling us they need, um, they need those uh, really important contributors to the economy. Is this a one-year cap, Minister, or right now do you foresee this sort of being a number that holds beyond 2026 to sort of help stabilize some of the, the domestic pressures that are at play? Well, it's an ongoing reflection, I'd say, David, and it's an important point because I think what we've also heard from Canadians is we need to plan a little longer than three years, maybe five, ten, if you're looking at uh, construction industry. Um, Right now, it is a stabilization at 500,000 because that is the number that is right in the context of, of what we analyzed as, uh, as, as a government. But again, I'll be looking pretty intensely on those different subcategories that I just mentioned to you over the next year and see if there's some tweaks that need to be made, um, whether we need to increase or, or decrease or even maintain st stability. But that will be an ongoing analysis throughout the year as we look at the different indicators that our strategic immigration review has told us to look at. Uh, notably, uh, the challenges and the needs in the healthcare industry, the challenges and needs in the construction industry, um, and across society, uh, and particularly uh, as we focus on uh, important areas like uh, northern rural realities that are much different than downtown Toronto, and that's not something we've been providing properly in a sophisticated way as a country in the past. There are a lot of competing issues here, though, right? Like, uh, we're there is obviously the housing shortage, but there's low productivity on a per, per G uh, you know, low GDP per capita in, in this country because of an aging workforce and population replacement and these sorts of things that, that need to happen. But, you know, one of the challenges we've seen on, on the housing side of it, Minister, is the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation said if Canada's immigration levels continue to grow year over year, the housing supply gap that exists would increase to about 4 million housing units by 2030. So, so how did that influence your decision and, and does stabilizing it rather than growing it help mitigate some of that risk the CMHC has put on the table? Well, I think it does, and it, 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 was, it was certainly clear that that is, that is one of the challenges, but that's only one part of the equation. The other side of the equation is who's going to build all those houses, and what you've heard clearly is we need 100,000 people to build them. They won't all be um, provided by the domestic economy, and we know that we need to do it through refining our immigration tools. My predecessor, Sean Fraser, put in an express entry program that will facilitate that, but it, what we're hearing clearly is we need to get a little better in how and who and the skills that we attract. As we've done as a country, and I'm using broad brushstrokes, we've matched kind of demand with hope from abroad. We give points to people with skills, doctors, lawyers, nurses, uh, tradesmen. But we then don't match it when we get in the country. They face foreign credential challenges, uh, and they end up sometimes driving cabs. That's ridiculous, and it's a loss of productivity. Uh, we need to do a better job with provinces and territories in making sure we're moving on accreditation, moving on making sure that those skilled trades actually get into the jobs that they have the hope to be here for when they get here. And that's something uh, that I need to refine as part of our public policy in the next year. And it's what we're measuring when we are establishing those numbers. Uh, clearly, 
uh, if someone is going into a rural or northern community in the healthcare space and keeping and indispensable to keeping that hospital open, they need somewhere to stay. And so that's a unique challenge that we need to reflect in, in some of our analysis and the work we do with those, uh, with those communities that are affected. 60% of this number are economic uh, uh, immigrants, as we'd call them. I know the Business Council has wanted to see that higher at 65%, but, but you, you mentioned something there that it, it maybe is the mix of skills that is in that 300,000 of the 500,000 who would be coming in for economic reasons. Do you need to recalibrate that to hit these specific challenges, for example, in the construction sector and in the trade sector? Do you need to look at a different mix of, of economic uh, immigration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that economic, in that emigra, uh, sorry, in that, em, uh, in that economic portfolio, there's you know, it's, we say 60%, but there's about seven, eight subcategories, the right. provincial nominee program, federal high school skilled worker program, all different categories that are trying to fine-tune our approach. We need to get better at that, and that's what the Business Council has clearly said. Uh, they know that there's a mix in competing considerations when you're talking about percentages and what goes in, you know, a portion of protected persons, a portion of family reunification, which does have an economic impetus and motive to it, um, but it's one, it's one that we've worked rather intimately with them to, to, to get right and always willing to re-examine that as we, as we move along. There's been a, I don't know if it's a, a drop in support for immigration uh, over the past year or so, but certainly since the affordability crisis and the how does housing challenges ha have been more magnified, Canadians are, are less supportive of letting a lot of immigrants into the country, uh, precisely for the capacity challenges that, that you say you're, needing to, you're dealing with here. You have to get this right. Uh, to turn that sentiment around, don't you? I mean, this cre there is a, a mood change that you now face the challenge of addressing as well by, by dealing with this. And I'd say whatever you make of those polls and analyses, there's certainly an increased focus. What, I, what I've been getting from reading them in detail is not so much your, uh, the assumption that this is a product of xenophobia. It largely isn't. Uh, it's, mostly, it's mostly Canadians wanting us to get it right. Uh, we have painted, and I think we've filled... Some, some, some broad macroeconomic considerations as a government by increasing volumes to address what you had mentioned earlier. Uh, when I was a kid, it was seven, seven workers to one retiree. It's now closer to three. That's really yeah. scary. I can't solve that in one election cycle. But what Canadians are saying, economists are saying, industry is saying, labor is saying, is, uh, is, is focus a little bit on the microeconomics and let's get things right uh, at local levels. Uh, let's look at what specific needs and industries are. And that's why, um, yes, absolutely, mm -hmm. we, we need to get it right, but we need to be able to do this without shooting ourselves in the foot. And I think uh, making sure that we're stabilizing and then reassessing those numbers uh, was key to me in the factors that I, that I assessed in, in, in making that recommendation to Cabinet. Yes, I certainly didn't mean to imply xenophobia was driving it. More capacity challenges, maybe let's press pause. Um, I, I want to quickly switch uh, to, to another topic. Um, this week, uh, your government met the target uh, to welcome 40,000 Afghans to Canada. But we know there are still more people, uh, more Afghans with ties to Canada who want to come here. Is there more room? Are you prepared to accept more Afghans because there are people in places like Pakistan right now that are in difficult circumstances and they see Canada as a safe haven? Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. Uh, and the situation in Pakistan is one that is extremely concerning given uh, the interim government's uh, decision to, 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 to remove a number of Afghan immigrants uh, as the deadline was last night. This is, these are these are concerns I expressed directly to the Minister of the Interior the other day. Um, we need to be able to protect our clients there that we want to get out. So uh, this has the potential of spiraling. We hope it doesn't. Um, but my focus as the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship is making sure we are, we are fulfilling our duties to those, one, that served us in Afghanistan, 
and that we always take a humanitarian approach to things. So we do have clients inside Pakistan that we, that we will do our utmost to get out. We're still working on that and thank the government of Pakistan for, for, for their support. We need their support to get exit visas in particular. Um, but also, you know, other places, including in Afghanistan, where I'm not at liberty to speak publicly about it, but I think it, it wouldn't surprise anything that our operational capacity to do things is extremely mm -hmm. limited. So uh, we want to be able to get this right. The 40,000 was an objective that we thought was reasonable, was something to achieve, but it isn't, uh, it isn't a hard ceiling. Okay, uh, so just uh, w one last point on, on the Pakistan uh, issue, because they are threatening to round up and deport undocumented immigrants. You say you spoke to the Interior Ministry about what, uh, the people who are there who are clients uh, of your department. Any assurances from Pakistan that they, they won't be rounded up and sent somewhere else uh, while, while we work through this? You know, what we did exchange was... Uh, you know, the concerns that I had for, for people that foremost have to be protected in a humanitarian way, I think that was understood. Um, you know, as a, as a minister in my position, you don't want to step too far out and get involved in their internal matters. They certainly they have a million uh, plus Afghans there that, um, that, uh, that, that, that need to be treated humanely. And if there are sponsor states or countries that they be uh, accorded exit visas, um, I don't like lecturing other people, but obviously my concern was clearly expressed that we were worried about the reform on back into Afghanistan. But were there any assurances, just, just, uh, just so I'm clear? Because I, I appreciate it's difficult to tell a, yeah, a And, and it's hard, hard to speak publicly because we, 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 we have a working relationship that right. um, is best kept private, but clearly the expression was concerned and there was a lot of goodwill between, between the sides. Okay. Minister of Immigration Mark Miller, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, David. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev says he will table a motion to expand the government's carbon price carve-outs to all home heating fuels. This comes just one day after the prime minister ruled out any further exemptions. Meanwhile, Polyev is calling for NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's support, with both leaders labeling the Liberals' approach as divisive and putting the prime minister on the defensive. Build a strong economy while we make life more affordable for Canadians, and one of the ways we're doing that is by working with provinces that are willing to to deliver free heat pumps to low-income Canadians that are using heating oil. Will Jagmeet Singh stand with provincial NDPers? Will he stand with the voters who, who put their trust in his MPs in places like Timmins and other cold northern communities? Or will he once again sell out working class Canadians in order to suck up to Justin Trudeau? Uh, we are discussing that, that uh, the conservative motion in our, in our team, we're discussing that still. But it's clear that we don't agree with the Liberals' divisive tactics. We don't agree with the climate denial of the Conservatives. We have our own path, and that's getting GSC off of home heating, making sure that we tax the excess profits of oil and gas companies that are making record profits. You know, this is a good topic for the power panel. As luck should have it, they're here. Jordan Leichnitz is the Canada Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. Tim Powers is the Chair of Summa Strategies. And Sherelle Evelyn is the Managing Editor of The Hill Times. Joining us remotely is Amanda Alvaro. She is a political commentator. So, uh, Amanda, let's start with you, because uh, the Conservatives are trying to jam your crowd pretty hard on this one, uh, while also doing a... a well, <laughs> Jagmeet Singh is catching some strays. I mean, what, what kind of a situation are they in right now? Well, surprising nobody ever. This is the Polyev playbook. Uh, so we're not surprised. But his calls, his motion really undermines the idea or the credibility or the sensibility of uh, this liberal plan, which was really to 
get on to uh, home heating oils because they're polluting, because they're more expensive, and because they're relied on disproportionately by lower-income Canadians. So, you know, the plan is sensible. I think that's the word that uh, that Sean Fraser used, but it's been met with a lot of criticisms, and I think that that in some way is justified for two reasons. One, because I think that they lost the narrative on, you know, this divisive nature, which NDP will bring up over and over again about really targeting Atlantic Canada, despite the fact that this... It's only about 25% of Canadians or, or those who use uh, home heating oil in Atlantic Canada. The rest is dispersed across the country, but they're on their back foot on that issue. And the second is really because they're looking, you know, this is a cornerstone environmental plank for the Liberals. It feels like a bit of a backtrack. It feels like a bit of a concession. And I think it really opened up a window or in this case, a really big door for Polyev. Well, you know, like Tim, it's only 3% of Canadians who burn oil for their fuel and, and overwhelmingly that, that's in Atlantic Canada. Uh, but, you know, to, to satisfy that 3% and, and take away the political pain caused by their sudden spike in price, they, they, they've got themselves in a situation where Polyev is able we, to well, it's, I mean, Justin Trudeau's giving him the ball, if you want to use a basketball metaphor, and saying, here, you have this layup. So why wouldn't you if you're the leader of the opposition in this case? I mean, this is classic opposition politics. The liberals themselves haven't done a really good job of explaining why uh, the carve-out is an acceptable mechanism. There have been lots of carve-outs. I, I can give you some lines, Amanda. You can give them to the prime minister's <laughs> office. How about Hibernia? They could start with that as an example, which was a classic carve-out of how an, of an offshore energy project would be developed, and a lot of investment went in. There was a lot of criticism at the time. But it wasn't seen as craven. It was seen as courageous. This is seen as a craven political move. Our friend or my friend, your uh, a colleague uh, uh, who you interviewed as well, Goody Hutchings from uh, the, the minister, said the truest thing that was said. Uh, she perhaps shouldn't have said it. She could have phrased that a bit differently, I think. She, no, no, no. But, you know, the, all political parties uh, in an election campaign are saying, vote for me, you'll do better. Um, she just shouldn't have said it when she did. And that has made this problem worse. She That made this even more political. Of course, Polyev's going to try and score points sure. off of it. It's helping drive his broader national narrative, so why wouldn't he go for something but, here? But, so, Jordan, where, where does this leave Jagmeet Singh, right? I mean, he, he's still straddling this line of calling Justin Trudeau an awful, terrible prime minister that he continues to support, you know, <laughs> under the terms of the confidence and supply agreement. But, you know, he wants to take the, the GST, HST off of home heating fuels, and now Polyev is going to bring this motion. I mean, what do you think the New Democrats do here? Well, you know, I think I think that, as he said, they're probably having some real interesting conversations behind closed doors mm -hmm. right now. But I think the important thing to take away about his approach is that the New Democrats aren't at all opposed to removing taxes off of home heating. They've already been clear about that. In fact, they were out uh, advocating for this carve-out on GST-HST months before this even became yeah. really a topic. So there's clearly an understanding within that caucus about the need to be active on energy affordability, particularly in those cross-pressured seats where you might have those blue-orange fights and think about places like Northern Ontario. Like Timmins, for example. Like Timmins, as Mr. for example. <laughs> exactly, right? So those are real fights. And I think that the party is clearly not going to go into those unarmed. So I wouldn't be surprised if they managed to, to chart their way through this. Um, no question 
There is obviously some commitment on the climate front there, but they've been out also talking more about alternatives, about making investments so that people have choices on other ways to heat their homes. Yeah. Uh, and that and that's something that we really haven't seen very much from the Conservatives. Yeah, uh, Sherelle, I mean, look, the, the cost of natural gas to heat your home, way, way, way cheaper uh, than oil. Uh, trust me, as someone who, who's paid for both. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the Polyev's pause the carbon price. Uh, Jagmeet Singh's uh, let's get rid of the GST. People want to break. I don't know if they care which way they get it. So where do you think this goes in terms of the NDP and the Conservatives on Monday when this is a vote? Well, it's obviously because it's a non-binding motion. Um, right. It kind of, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it does signal absolutely, you know, where this fight could go. Um, I do think there is a, a pathway here for the NDP to support the Conservatives' motion, um, just because they're, you know, we heard Jagmeet Singh out today saying people want relief and they want it immediately. They want it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if this is something that would provide that relief, it would be a, a bit off message and a bit off brand for uh, the NDP to say, well, we're going to stand in the way of showing our support for something that is going to give uh, people that relief that we say we so desperately want. It doesn't mean, of course, that it's, you know, they're going to bring down the government over it. Um, but I do think there is a pathway for them to, you know, support this motion and, and but then kind of say, throw their hands up and say, well, it was non-binding and it wasn't something that we we're willing to call an election over. And as you said, you know, when you have those, that, that dichotomy of, you know, one fuel being cheaper than the other, I think that's what the liberals were banking on here as people mm-hmm. were kind of maybe would think it was like, we're all in this together, have that rousing high school musical kind of refrain. And everybody would say, <laughs> you know what, for the good of our neighbors who are, you know, who have to pay this exor- exorbitantly more amount of money to heat themselves in the winter, yeah. you know, sure, might, maybe we don't, it's not fair, but we get it. That's not happening. Times are tough across the board. Um, and I don't think the Liberals, you know, which is common for, for me, is that they didn't communicate well on this. Uh-huh. And that's something that we see time and time again that's shooting them in the foot. Yeah. So, so Amanda, the facts are is that this is a national carve-out for home eating oil. The truth is it really yes. only matters in Atlantic Canada because that's where all the people burn oil. So did they just kind of screw it up from the jump by having the Prime Minister with the Atlantic Caucus like the Atlantic Caucus, not the Rural Caucus, of which there are not that many, admittedly, mm-hmm. but the Atlantic Caucus only celebrating this is a big victory for, for Atlantic Canada, which normally I love to see, but, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> of the home field. But, but it seems like the, the, from the beginning they framed it against their argument. Yeah, well, I think there's a few people on this panel that would be supporting the Atlantic Canada cause. But that aside, I think the challenge was that, you know, the announcements made and then a couple of days later, it's like this clarifying, which we've seen, unfortunately, from the Liberals time and time again, these clarifying statements. Well, you know, 25 percent of those who use home heating oil are in Atlantic Canada, 40 percent in Quebec, 20 percent in Ontario, 10 percent in the Western provinces. It is dispersed across the country. And while there might be a disproportionate part of Atlantic Canada, Canadians who are affected by this. Uh, the truth is there are, there are rural communities across the country who will benefit from not just the carve out, but also, you know, looking at um, the rebate and also looking at the incentive to move to heat pumps. These are things that should happen to make things more affordable, less polluting, and to deal with those Canadians who are really at a disadvantage because of the kind of oil that they're using. Um, but again, this became a bit of a communications issue. And now we have Polyev really positioning as it as an affordability versus sustainability and could mm-hmm. be the big ballot box issue, right? So he's already framing it. He yeah. does such a good job of frame, framing it for the next election. 
There's raw math, too, right, in the politics of it all, too. Why, you know, uh, 32, 33 seats in Atlantic Canada. Yep. Uh, mm. As we have said before, as Amanda well knows, 2011, the worst year of the Liberals in recent memory, they, they, they won a majority of seats there. They know if they're going to win the next election, they have to hold those seats in Atlantic Canada. Or put a floor underneath uh, them. Or put a yeah. floor underneath them. So they can't lose what they have there. Also, there's the personal relationships of the of the Prime Minister there. I mean, he's very close with Dominic LeBlanc, Seamus O'Regan. He, uh, 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 he's been good to the region. Uh, he's bringing an EU summit to the region. He, uh, uh, you know, if, if we're anything in Atlantic Canada, we're more like the Illuminati. We control everything, uh, <laughs> as, as proven here. But I think he, no he conspiracy heard, theories no, on the no show, please, no, no, whatsoever. Yeah. But he heard, he's heard so much in the region. He spent a lot of time in the region, uh, and I think he just couldn't get away from it. Then, of course, there was that cabinet meeting in Prince Edward Island, and we all remember that we accused them rightly of having poor messaging coming out of that. I think he thought to get the Atlantic Canadians off his back, it was worth <laughs> going down this path, but they didn't think it forward, uh, as Amanda well illustrated in some of the facts that she's provided. They And this seems to be to Sherelle's point, a consistent problem with the government. They think they've solved a problem, they come and make an announcement, and then they haven't thought about or worked through how all the uh, validating communications and secondary messages are going to come out. Yeah, and I think Tim's being really polite here. The reality is, is that the was Illuminati. Polite. That was polite. polite. Yeah. The Illuminati tend to be polite. <laughs> well, they, this is what I hear. Like, look, I, it verges on political malpractice that you would roll out, or, you know, a carve out that that goes to the core of your absolute banner commitment around climate change, which is the absolute banner commitment of your prime yep. minister, without a plan and without without knowing and without understanding and having a plan to deal with the fact that there would be calls for regional fairness. And at this point, you know, you have to wonder for people in, in, uh, in Ontario who've got boatloads of liberal MPs and they're starting to wonder what's the use of it if they're, if they're not getting access to some of these same benefits that people in Atlantic Canada are. And so I think more than anything, this was a victory for the Atlantic caucus, but really at the expense of the prime minister and at ex the expense of the liberals in a hugely damaging way. Cheryl, what do you think? I think that clip from, I believe it was yesterday, of the Prime Minister kind of saying very stridently, like, yeah. there will be no more carve-outs, there will be no more suspensions. I think that's going to come back yeah. around. I think it's probably going to bite them in the rear end. Um, I don't, I think it's going to end up in a few, uh, you know, political campaign ads when ultimately they do have to end up walking something else back just because the pressure that is going to be felt from across the country might just be too, you know, difficult to ignore. Uh, Amanda, I, I don't want to say that what happens in Parliament isn't important, but, you know, Sherelle <laughs> did make the point that this resolution on Monday is non-binding. So it doesn't compel the government to do anything. But it is a public moment where people are going to be asked to take a side on this one. And going back to the framing this as a ballot box issue, I mean, Polyev would love to run on this. You know, he's calling for a carbon tax election. What's the risk yeah. there for the NDP, for the Liberals and all these people when they are going to be asked on Monday to take a side on this? Yeah, I mean, those are all, all overtures and symbols and signals about what is to come. But he's being completely blatant about it. He's saying, let's have, Polyevis, let's have a carbon tax election. Let's make this the ballot box issue. Let's frame this as affordability, frankly, versus sustainability. And at a time when Canadians are feeling the crunch, 
It's a hard argument for the Liberals to win, especially if they're seen to be given a concession on this issue. So I agree with Jordan on the point that you cannot take, and, and I'm a Liberal, so I'm saying, you know, I'm saying this with love in my heart, but you cannot take your cornerstone environmental platform plank, what you run on, and carve out on this issue, you will be seen to have walked it back, it will be seen to be a concession, and you will be signaling to Canadians that, yes, affordability matters, but maybe we won't go all the way for you. It's a huge window. It's a massive door for Polyev, and there's no doubt that he would he would step through it as he has. So, Tim, Amanda says, you can't do these things, and yet they did. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, uh, you know, you get back to Atlantic Canada more than I do. I mean, do you think this is enough? Do you think this will work? Do you think this will calm some people down? That, that's the funny thing. I haven't seen the bouquets, the the, the high fives, the uh, the applauding. I uh, the four Atlantic premiers who ran a very uh, loud campaign for, uh, albeit it was focused on other things, Please fuel surcharge yeah. and pause on on carbon pricing. Have ne'er said a word, as far as I know, about this to say this is a, this is a good measure. They've been smart enough to stay out of it. I've seen the MPs go uh, and talk about it, but uh, I, you know, I don't think this is the home run they think they, they believe it's going to be at home. Particularly because, David, um, you're not going to see the checks until the new year. Uh, and the pause in home heating oil, the thing you and I both know, you've probably got your oil now uh, right. f- until the winter comes. So you're going to fill up a second time. You're, you're paying at the front end right now. Okay, uh, we're tight on time. I just want to get two quick final points uh, from Jordan and Shrell. But uh, Premier Fury of Newfoundland and Labrador did weigh in and thanked the Prime Minister, kind of the Deputy Prime Minister, and no thanks to the Environment Minister. Oh, yeah, so where is Stephen <laughs> Gilboa in this? I think the Prime Minister's where comments yesterday were to assure he stays maybe in Cabinet. You know, what do you make of that? Yeah, and I don't know. This is going to be a really difficult thing for him. There's no question that this was this was undoubtedly done against his strong advice. But, you know, sometimes when you're a minister and there's there's political decisions that are made, this is this is the line that you have to walk. It doesn't make it any less awkward, but there's going to be a lot of water to carry here. Uh, and we'll see if he, he wants to do it. Okay, Sherelle, last word to you. Yeah, just I would just agree with Jordan on that. We haven't seen uh, the environment minister, and we keep seeing a lot of pushback against him from, you know, various premiers. People don't want to talk to him. Um, yeah. I don't know how sustainable that is going to be in the long run. You know who also, just, uh, I, I'm going to give myself the final point, who also hasn't uh, defended this in question period, despite being credited as playing a key role, is the Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, Christian Freeland. This is apparently her idea, her push. Mm-hmm. Where's she on this? I'm curious to hear her explain it. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Sherelle Evelyn, Tim Powers, Jordan Likeness, and Amanda Alvaro. Thank you so much, gang. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.